happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 152 for October 23rd, 2019. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in the beautiful Missoula, Montana area on the University of Montana campus. And joining me as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you today? Good evening, Jason. I am well, and I appreciate you delaying a little bit as I was out and about and glad to be joining from Oklahoma City, where we were anticipating some uh, rain and cooler weather, but probably probably not as cool. Have, have you guys had a freeze yet? Uh, yeah, we've had a couple freezes, and then um, we're starting to actually, it's been pretty nice here. There's been a couple of, of cloudy, gray, rainy days um, but, uh, yeah, winter's definitely coming. The good news is, is that we were a little scared we were going to jump into winter. We had a massive storm about three and a half weeks ago, but it appears we're going to get a fall after all. So, uh, it's been very nice here, although I'm, of course, leaving this weekend for lovely Seattle, Washington for, um, a checkup. I think I've mentioned in, in the past that I am a kidney transplant recipient and it is my four and four-year, four-month anniversary, and I go yearly to go have them poke and prod add to my uh, newly uh, new-to-me organ. So I'll be going and hanging out in Seattle this weekend where it's supposed to be warm and 58 degrees and sunny. So that's very exciting. Nice, so, nice. Enough about the weather. What is this thing we're doing, Wes? Well, we have missed you and hope that you had a great birthday celebration last week, and we are the EdTech Situation Room, and we gather generally on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain to talk about the week's tech news. And tonight we are actually doing a slightly different stream because we're not using Restreamio. We're using StreamYard only, uh, and we are not going to my personal Facebook page. We are going to our uh, Facebook page for EdTech SR because the StreamYard platform now supports that, and we're also going to YouTube Live, and we're here to talk about the week's tech news and look at it through an educational lens, as it were. Well, uh, let's see. First of all, I have to say I was really sad to miss last week, not just because you had a great guest in Carl, but I also... Um, missed out on Google's announcements. And so before we jump into this week's news, I do want to make a couple of brief comments because I know there's been a lot of hand-wringing um, at, uh, at Google's announcements. And first and foremost, um, I'm not a candidate for a Pixel 4 phone. Um, it uh, looks like a beautiful device, and I do know that some of the Google faithful Shout out to Mr. Simon Miller, uh, a, a friend and Googleite from uh, lovely upstate Idaho who uh, has been a, a googly guy for a long time. He was not very happy with the camera in the Pixel 4 and had noted back uh, uh, that on Twitter in the last week. But I guess I would like to focus a quick discussion on the release last week of the Pixelbook Go, which is the new Pixel device, Pixel uh, Chrome OS device that was released by Google. So I have to mention that I am a, uh, a Pixel um, a Pixel Book owner, so uh, about nine months after they released the Pixel Book in 2017. So this was um, spring 2018. I did pick up a Pixel Book. It's been a great laptop. I'm a little terrified to travel with it because it, it feels a little fragile, although it's been a pretty hardy worker for me. And I did have to return this once uh, because the display stopped working. It was replaced um, within a, uh, just a, a week. So I was able to go back up on that. But I do like the Pixelbook a lot. But a lot of folks have been talking about the fact that Google has released a more traditional laptop as part of their 2019 offering have not evolved this notion of a four-in-one, which is what the Pixelbook, original Pixelbook was. So I will say I've not touched one. I've not utilized one. I have watched a couple videos. Um, I prefer a laptop to a two-in-one or a four-in-one because, to be honest, I really don't know what to do with the other form factors. Um, it's nice to have a touch screen and have kind of a tablet experience, but this is a pretty big tablet. I've also never understood the other modes. Um, like tent mode is interesting, but I almost never use it. And tablet mode is also quite interesting. And then um, 
I, I, I forgot what this one's referred to, but the kind of presentation mode I've heard it referred to is also interesting, but something I almost never use. And so if I didn't already have a great device from Google, I probably would be a candidate to pick up the Pixelbook Go. Um, I am actually working on a, a, a longer blog article. I don't know if it'll turn into something or not because I've been just kind of working on things, but um, I'm of the opinion that Google does overprice these devices in compared to other devices in the marketplace that have i3, i5, i7 chips, 8 or 16 gigabytes of RAM. Um, that does mean that you can oftentimes pick up a used or a year old premium Chromebook for well under the price the Pixelbook Go will be. Um, so I don't know. I think for the Google faithful, it's an excellent um, an excellent uh, addition to the product line. I also think they will probably continue to sell the original Pixelbook because it is an interesting form factor that there is no real alternative to. And so just a couple of thoughts there. So Wes, um, did you go out and buy 200 Pixelbook Goes to you know, spread throughout the masses or what was your response to last week's Google announcements? You know, <clears throat> I'm definitely still interested from the Chrome side as far as, you know, school, Although, yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, that's my that would be my main interest. So, no, I we're we're the Google Home users, right? I think you guys have gone all in with the Alexa. We're still all right. in with the Google Home. Um, I think you know it's interesting. They're branding some stuff with Nest, and but I didn't know. I guess I'm trying to think of what the feature. There was some kind of a feature bump that they had with their their home speakers, but right, not in the market right now for any of that stuff. So. Not a big impact for us. Yeah, right. So, and I, and I'm hearing that a lot actually. And I do know, let's see, I know at least of two folks that are, um, that purchased the, the Pixel 4 and have received them now. They're starting to show up. And so that, that's definitely an interesting, uh, piece. And so I'll keep an eye on that. But big picture for me is that I'm not entirely sure. Um, if you bought last year's uh, a phone product or the two-year-ago uh, Pixelbook, that if an update is really necessary. But to be frank, I think that's the problem across all of these technologies, right? There's very little in the way of, of really new features in any of these product lines that require that even the super geeky and, and very up-to-date folks, there's very little to jump onto unless you're holding on to a three- or four-year-old device. Well, yeah, and, and then I guess I'll put in a pitch, you know, because I'm, I don't know, how many weeks into the iPhone 11 Pro. I mean, this camera is freaking incredible. I mean, being able to, you know, sit in the in the stands for volleyball games with our daughter and, you know, basically feel like I've got a digital SLR uh, as far as tell with a telephoto lens on it, you know, being able to edit these live photos to capture just the, the right moment where, you know, she's making contact with the ball and stuff. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm loving the camera and, and the wide angle is, is so fun. Actually had a chance to shoot a second grade remix video for Lion King in the, what is it called? Um, is it in the jungle? Anyway, they wrote it about communities. It's just, it's absolutely lovely. Um, and I think we'll be edit, we'll be working on editing it tomorrow and hopefully maybe even publishing it this week. Um, yeah, phenomenal to, to have the, the power of that. So I don't, I don't think I anticipated myself, you know, uh, what am I doing? Proclaiming, uh, evangelizing the benefits of the latest camera, but it, it really is pretty amazing. So, Anyway, yeah, there's there's that. But, you know, could I have survived without it and, you know, continued to slog, you know, slog on with the iPhone 7 Plus, of course. But hey. Anyway. Excellent. So, um so and again, we don't need to rehash uh uh the news again this week, but I did want to make a couple comments related to that. And, you know, I remain pretty happy in the Google ecosystem. We are not really using the smart home stuff because we have gone more all in on the Amazon Alexa, and I do will share something later uh in our Geek of the Week where you could if you're a Spotify premium user, you can actually get a free Google Home, which is uh uh um, the, the home mini is, is something that Spotify is giving away for pro users. So I'll share that link a little bit later uh, in the show tonight, but, um, you know, we shall see. 
So there's a couple of other interesting pieces of Google news that I do want to share. There was a really interesting article in yesterday's Bloomberg that talks about how the, the headline is Google hooked us on free storage and now Google is making us pay. And Bloomberg argues that uh, there are a lot of people that are starting to run up against um, uh, free storage in their email, and it's turning into a somewhat interesting uh, conundrum for people that are longtime Gmail users because as you run up into storage limits, your only real option is to buy up additional storage. And Google happens to offer uh, cheaper storage than they used to. They have a service called Google One, which uh, uh, allows you to pick up 100 gigs of extra storage for $1.99 a month. Uh, I happen to have a year's free of of Google One uh, storage because it was offered to me with a Chromebook I picked up a couple of months ago uh, for a project. And so I'm not paying for that right now. But um, I've had a Google uh, Gmail account since 2004. I'm pretty sure that... Um, you know, that I've come close at some point to running up against that storage. But the, uh, the, the argument is, is that Google's trying to expand their, uh, income from services like Gmail by charging for storage. Now I have a slightly more nuanced take on this, but Wes, I'm assuming you've had your Gmail account for some time as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A long, long time. In fact, I hadn't, hadn't seen this article and, you know, we've increased our iCloud storage to a terabit. Uh, and thankfully Apple has decreased those prices and they're not crazy, but yeah, I, I probably need to, need to take a look. Am I close to what? Is it the 15 megabit or 15 gigabyte limit that people are hitting? A year, gig, yeah. Yes. And, you know, you may remember in the early days of Gmail, the joke was that they had a spinner that showed you the amount of space that was available to you. And they started at a, a relatively large amount of megabytes and they would you know, tick up over time the amount of storage available to you. And it's theoretically unlimited storage because Google will continue to evolve over time. But what I find interesting about this is that there's a subtext here that the Bloomberg is not talking about. If Google's going in this direction and they are intentionally trying to start to charge users for things that were previously free, like storage, I think that's a sign that Google's diversifying in order to diminish the impact of, of, of lower amounts of money available for personal data trade, right? One of the things that makes the Google service free is because they do utilize and capitalize on advertising and targeted advertising through data. And part of what they do is collect personal data as part of their services. And that turns into targeted advertising. I would rather pay $1.99 a year for 100 gigabytes of storage, store my Google Docs, to store my Google Drive, to store all those pieces, if that means eventually Google's model will start to evolve to um, involve more payment for services as opposed to data trade for free. And, you know, there's a lot of talk. In fact, I heard Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate, talking um, on uh, NPR this morning as a presidential candidate. And he was mentioning a fact that I'm sure is true, but that personal data, is, the, the large esque of personal data is more valuable than the world's petroleum reserves, um, which I think seems right to me in light of the amount um, that each, uh, each person's data is worth. But I think there's an interesting phenomenon here. And and um, there could be a shift, right, to where a lot of the services that sell your eyeballs to advertisers, you know, may be starting to diversify to make up for, for some of the expenses lost as part of the tech correction that we talk about here. Well, OK, so I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I I didn't really know <laughs> where I was at with this and with my subscription. So I am. 29% used of a hundred gigs. So I'm at 29.4 gigs. And then when I go into my Google account, Oh, look, I am a subscriber to Google one, which is $20 a year, which yep. is a hundred gigs. And that's going to renew in February of last year. And there, lo and behold, is my credit card. And it turns out I've been a subscriber since June 20th, 2018, which I, I don't actually Know that I remember. I thought I had signed up when we got a Chromebook for my wife. It came with like, you know, extra storage that it, that it added on. I'm also actually an annual subscriber to the Dark Sky app, which I think I thought was free. 
uh, and that's about to renew if I don't do anything on November 26th. So I'm going to go in there and manage that. So yeah, having just, you know, given an internet safety for families hour and a half presentation tonight talking about, you know, how, in fact, my geek of the week connects to this as far as things that we click on and subscriptions and, you know, being savvy and aware of all that. Peggy's asking in the chat if that affects just Gmail or all Google storage. I think that's your total sum. So right. that's your Google Drive, everything. Google Photos. You know, and it's interesting. Yeah. And so with photos, I mean, I'm, I've been for a while, even though I'm still using Flickr because I was kind of afraid Flickr was going to go away. You know, I've got all of my photos uploading automatically in a compressed format, not original. Uh, size to Google Photos. So, you know, I'm, I'm all in and I'm definitely in that category where, you know, if they say, Hey, you're going to pay, then, then I'm going to pay. And I am paying, it turns out. So a good heads up and a reminder to everybody to check out what kinds of services you have subscribed to within Google. If you've got a personal account and, you know, take a look at that, a personal audit. Perhaps that's yeah. something that should be done on an annual basis, a personal digital audit where we are taking a look at things where, you know, it's not just for credit cards and money. It, it also should be, you know, passwords, web accounts, apps. Um, I said tonight in our session, in addition to good password hygiene and monitoring, managing screens, that we should be wiping our devices on at least an annual basis. You know, it's the only way to make sure you've really taken everything off your phone and your device. But that that probably, because people are doing tech fasts and stuff like that. But like who's saying we need to be doing tech, aud- you know, digital audits. Right. And here I am, you know, being caught, not even really knowing what I was signed up and paying for. So Check it out, folks. What are you signed up for in the Google universe? And is it something you want to continue to pay for? I would take it, Jason, you're going to continue, you're going to continue paying because you're on the same Google One plan. I am on the same Google One plan and I just looked myself to make sure and I have, I could probably back down to a smaller plan because I, I did receive a couple of times in the last 18 months additional 100 gigabytes for a year, but I currently have uh, a total of, where did that go now? Um, I have 302 gigabytes of storage available to me. Um, a hundred of that is, uh, free stuff, a hundred of it I'm paying for, and I currently have, uh, 240 gigs of storage between my Google Drive, and I back up a lot of stuff there that's the triple backup uh, stuff, uh, some personal files, uh, some personal media that's backed up there, but, um, yeah, and your advice is extremely, extremely important. Like, if you're not regularly reviewing your credit card and bank account for things you don't recognize, um, and you know, this has happened to me quite a few times where if you don't do that, then what sometimes happens is that, um, you know, services you forgot you signed up for or review services you may not use. And the good news is, is that a lot of the, you know, tricks and, and terrible things that companies used to use that you have to use in this, put in a support ticket to cancel your account. A lot of that's gone away, especially because of, of credit card. Uh, issuers. A lot of them have said that it's an inappropriate use of a credit card to keep charging someone every month if they've expressed any sort of intent that you want to get rid of your account. But yeah, I think a, a good review of that is pretty important. So I think holiday time is, is a good, I mean, not everybody has the luxury, you know, as those in education to mm-hmm. have an extended, you know, Christmas time holiday. But um, mm-hmm. some, sometimes that's been when I have kind of looked at presentations and websites and stuff like that. So that may be a good thing to think about at some point, you know, what do they, people say like, uh, when daylight savings time, you know, change the batteries in your fire alarms and, you know, you should be changing filters in your HVAC systems, you know, even sooner than that. But it's probably good to think about some kind of trigger that you can have that says, ah, time for, time for the digital audit. Um, and I will say also, you know, to Google's credit, They've done phenomenal things. We talked on the show a couple weeks ago about the security improvements and the way that you can check to see if your passwords have been part of breaches. Um, just in the account stuff, like under data, data and personalization, there's that privacy checkup. Um, but there's really, I think, great tools uh, in terms of what's being stored and saved. Um, but then definitely the payments of, and subscriptions, you know, check out, especially your recurring payments. Um and make sure that you are not signed up for something you don't want to continue to be signed up for and paying. 
Absolutely true. So then one other quick Google article, and then we can move on with uh, other topics. But The Verge reported today something that's extremely interesting to me. But Google released six apps today, six kind of experimental apps that are aimed at the, the way it's being framed in the tech media is using your phone less. So in other words, it's trying to tackle uh, and give tools to people to deal with digital distraction. And they're all really fascinating, uh, fascinating takes on this. Um, in addition to the apps they released, they also released kind of an API toolkit so that, that developers could hook into those apps. Um, but basically, uh, there's a variety of apps here that are intended to, uh, you know, kind of allow you more control to set your device up to be more limited based on your needs. So um, there's one called Unlock Clock, which helps you consider your tech usage by counting and displaying the number of times you unlock your phone during the day, uh, which is an, an interesting phenomenon. Um, Postbox is a notification um, piece that allows you to pick a time of day to see your notifications. So if you want to see them every 20 minutes or every hour or every two hours, as opposed to having them always available to you, that's an interesting um, experiment. Um, probably the most interesting one to me is Morph. Morph is an Android launcher. And for those of you that are iOS folks, a launcher is a piece of software that you can install on your phone to change the nature of, of the, how your phone performs and, and how it looks. Uh, every phone comes with a native launcher that's either made by the manufacturer of the phone or by Google itself. And then there are dozens of great launchers and probably hundreds of mediocre launchers you can download. But the Morph launcher by Google allows you to set up a kind of a, a, a location-based set of software. So you can say, I want my home set. It will only show you the apps that you designate as home apps, or I want my work set. So it will show you apps that, that are ones you traditionally use at work. And then it, it obviously you can still get to the other apps, right? But it only shows you the ones that would be part of your home context. And so if you really want entertainment and, you know, good, wholesome, uh, uh, mindless stuff at home and want nothing about work. You can just not have any of your work apps available there and, you know, allow you to use context. I imagine you could do like a gym one, a coffee shop one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's very interesting to me. I think it's a smart solution, but it's really interesting to have Google do what, what Apple's doing as well for that matter and start to think about, are there ways that we can provide tools that empower users to make good decisions on their own behalf? Absolutely. Okay, well, where next, sir? All right. Well, why don't we talk a little miscellaneous news? Uh, I didn't have another category. You got some great security articles I actually am eager to get to, but uh, I put a couple in there. Uh, this one is, involves CRISPR. So this is from MIT Technology Review on October 21st, 2019. The title is The Newest Gene Editor radically improves on CRISPR. And actually, what I think I'll try to do, StreamYard, now that we're not using Restreamio, has this built-in um, chat, which it looks like is working, yes, on both Facebook and YouTube. So there's the the, the link, uh, Peggy and others. We have another viewer out there uh, that you can check out. We've talked about CRISPR. Um, one of the best you know, books in the last three or four years I've listened to was called The Industries of the Future, talking about, um, among other things, genomics and biotechnology and how huge that you know, is and is going to continue to be. CRISPR is a gene editing technology that is just incredible. Uh, basically, what it lets geneticists do is snip out parts of the, the genome. Uh, and actually, in our Sunday school class, we've been talking a lot about uh, genetics and, and science. And so I like have a statistic. We're reading a book by the, the fellow who led the human genome project, uh, Francis Collins. And we have 6 billion base pairs of DNA. So you get 3 billion from mom, you get 3 billion from, from dad. Uh, you average person has about 60 mutations that are unique to them. Anyway, all those base pairs, uh, a gene isn't a specific number of base pairs. It kind of varies. But what CRISPR does is it lets you snip out and the, the base pairs, uh, I'm speaking like I'm a geneticist, but really I've just stayed in a Holiday Inn Express a couple of weeks ago in the Denver area. Um, the, the CRISPR um, process snips out a segment of DNA. And then, as I understand it, they have enzymes that are there and that basically reforms it. And so for things, for genetic uh, diseases and, and things that are involved in 
you know, code being messed up, uh, it's, it's a potential way to repair things or to put different things into the, the genetic code. Well, this is being called CRISPR prime. And this just blows my mind, but each base pair in DNA has four different letters that correspond to it. The way this is described, and it's not just MIT Technology Review, it's also, there's an article from Wired and some other places I saw this. They said, instead of scissors, think of a word processor. And this lets the geneticist go in and literally change one letter on one base pair. So I watched a pretty interesting first episode of a Netflix series uh, called Unnatural Selection. And it just came out recently. And it ta- it starts with this like dog breeder in Alabama who's trying to take the luminescence DNA of a jellyfish and put that into a dog so you can have dogs that glow naturally. And it's like, is, is this a good idea? And people who, you know, want to empower garage homebrew, you know, CRISPR genetic editing. <laughs> My gosh, this is crazy. It's like science fiction. So how does this relate to school at all? Well, I think it's important for kids to know about DNA. I think it's important for them to know about not only the science of DNA, but it's also good to talk about the ethics of that, right? I mean, just because we can do everything, does that mean we we should do everything? You know, what should the limits be? What are the potential unintended consequences of making changes to organisms that could have permanent effects? Um, now, again, in addition to staying at a Holiday Inn Express, Alexander and I did visit the Denver Museum of Science um, weekend before last. And among other things, you know, we were reminded of, you know, how many mass extinctions we've had on the planet. Like 99% of all species, I think, are dead, you know, wiped out that we've had in the, what, 6 billion years of Earth history that we've had. Anyway, this is incredible. Like, this article is incredible. And so this is called CRISPR Prime. And, you know, from a healing and you know, let's cure diseases standpoint, it definitely sounds incredible, right? Cystic fibrosis and these other kinds of things. If you can go in there, replace those genes, and then those replicate, and and it's possible to cure these diseases, that just sounds incredible. But even though we map the human genome, we don't know everything that the genome does. I mean, we're just like babies in all this. So, Jason, are you ready to go get a home CRISPR, you know, do it yourself kit? And, and what would be the modified, you know, pet, let's say that you'll be creating in the knife or home soon? Will, will the cats have some special features that you're going to, you know, just wire into them? Well, I mean, unless genetics, you know, makes uh, cats less grouchy in their old age, I'm not really sure if if that's something that we're particularly interested in. The but, grouchy gene discovered yeah, the by Doctor Knifer of Missoula, yeah, Montana. Sadly, I think I got that in both from both sides of the family. But the thing that that's interesting to me there is the ease of, of what you're describing seems terrifying to me, right? Because if I know, and and I've I've read just enough of this from what you've shared, Wes, that that I know that there is a bit of of uh, overhead here. It's not like people uh, quite yet will be at home, you know, cooking up things in their maker lab uh, to do that. But, you know, the ease of, 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 of doing this editing and then, you know, introducing that back into, you know, whatever you're introducing it back into is seems terrifying to me. And as we talked about, we had, had, had mentioned um, back when there was the two babies born in China that uh, had uh, uh, snipped DNA um, and genes were edited for the purpose of uh, trying to get rid of, of, of hereditary disease hand down. I believe, believe it was HIV. Um, the, the thing that's, that's, that's terrifying about that is we still don't really have wide acknowledgments of rules of engagement here. And, you know, the technology is getting to the point where a competent uh, scientific lab can do this, whether they're buying ethical codes or not. So let's, let's develop some, some strong rules around this. It could be a miracle. It will be a miracle for a lot of people, I would imagine. And there's a lot of interesting things we can do with this, but let's not forget that there's a lot of ways to introduce some pretty nasty stuff. I would assume into our universe. Absolutely. All right. Where to next? Well, let's talk security. So uh, I have some interesting things to share tonight. Um, the first one is probably, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, a, um, 
uh, 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 interesting warning, the How To Geek report on October 12th that, uh, you should be considering whether or not your router, your home internet router is getting updates. And this is something that my guess is that very few people outside of the nerdier set are doing on their own. And so um, you are probably using a Wi-Fi router at home. It could have been provided by your cable or DSL company. It could be something you've purchased yourself. It could be like Mama and Papa Knife or something that their son installed for them and it's just assumed to work. But something that's that's important to understand is that we've talked a lot in the past about the danger of having Internet of Things devices in your home, smart cameras, smart lights, all the various machinations of, of smart devices and Internet of Things devices. And a lot of the really cheap ones have what's called firmware or the software that backs this on the device that was terribly insecure in the first place and is not receiving updates. And so this great article from the How To Geek goes through how you check to see if your uh, router, your home router, um, has firmware installed that is 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 being updated for security purposes. And remember, chances are, if you've got a decent router, you have some kind of what they refer to as a firewall, right? That it's a protective measure so that your devices are now not out on the open internet, right? But if you use a cheap router that is old and not receiving updates, or if a security hole is in your router and uh, it's not being patched, or if your router requires that you yourself go out and get the, the patch or get the software update and download it yourself, you could be placing all of your devices at extraordinary risk. And I know the security stuff sounds like a lot of drum beating of doom, but it's a dangerous world out there. And unfortunately, with the billions and billions of devices out there, uh, there's a lot of fertile ground for hackers. And um, the more I listen to, uh, and I mentioned this podcast several weeks back, the Darknet Diaries podcast, where they talk about uh, various types of, of of what they call white hat hackers or people that do security uh, penetration tests to find out what is, is secure, insecure in the corporate world. Um, it's an extraordinarily uh, a fertile ground for folks. And if you've got data you want to protect, um, you should utilize good strategies, and one of them will be doing updated routers um, or updated router firmware. So I have to ask, Wes, um, are you actively updating your firmware, sir? We are because we've moved to Google. Now, wait a minute. I need to step that back because my router is separate from my Wi-Fi uh, access point and Google Wi-Fi because we're you know, still running the surfboard uh, router. So I need to check that. And, <laughs> you know, the ways in which our show and the thinking we do here bleed over into other areas of life. I, I shared this Internet Safety for Families presentation, which I think my wife needs to tell me what it should have been called. She was I, I probably should have done a little bit more on screen time and, you know, uh, screen time monitoring and filtering. We did a little bit of that, but we talked about Internet of Things and how many internet connected devices do you have in your house and are those getting updates? And if you're shopping for Christmas, because this is part of where like the rubber meets the road, what's the guideline? Look for, you know, works with Apple HomeKit, um, you know, certified to work with Google Assistant, works with Amazon Madame A, um, because the devices that aren't certified to work with any kind of, you know, acknowledged and known system and that aren't going to, they probably aren't going to be patched and updated. Uh, we talked, I mean, I don't know, maybe I went too far afield with some of this, but we talked about the Mirai botnet, right? We've talked about that on the show. Literally a couple kids in Alaska that had a, a Minecraft hosting service and wanted to take down their competitors, you know, developed what was at the time and maybe even till today, one of the most sophisticated botnet creators that ha that hacked and hijacked security cameras, DVRs, um, you know, home routers, all of these different tools that became parts of these massive botnets that were used for denial service attacks that basically almost brought the internet to an, you know, to a to a shutdown. So, I don't know, Jason, how do you create immediate uh, you know, awareness and the desire to change for this. I just, I think we're sitting ducks. I don't, I don't think many consumers are going to care. And I, I think our stuff's just going to get hacked. Am, am I 
being a little bit too pessimistic? Um, you're not. And I do think that, that I would implore our fellow tech savvy folks that, that, that are maybe listening to the podcast. I would imagine we, we tend to, to aim our, our audience as a certain crowd. You should be spreading the good word on this, right? And as an example of this, I did update my parent home internet recently, um, to a Delco mesh router system. It's something I did a little bit of research on and there's a Walmart version of it. But the other reason why I like the, the mesh router system from Delco is that I'm managing this on an app on my phone. In fact, I was just checking to see um, if my parents' uh, Wi-Fi router, um, uh, uh, which is an all-in-one system for them, is updated, right? That it's maintained updates. And also, it sends me text messages when new... Um, and on text messages, notifications on my phone when new devices get on the Delco router that, that it hasn't seen before. And, you know, I'm not saying necessarily you need to, you know, big brother it into all of your family's houses, but I do think that if you're providing family tech support, this is the kind of stuff that I, I, I think you should be, you know, actively working on. And, you know, I really worry about, you know, unfortunately we have kind of a disposable tech society right now. Um, I, there is a, a lifespan to devices. I hope a Wi-Fi um, router would be something that, you know, would last for four or five years, uh, certainly not the 10 or 12 years that other people wish. But you mentioned, uh, Wes, that you have a surfboard modem at home. As an example of something that is also a problem with cable company equipment, uh, telephone company equipment with, 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 uh, that, um, I've read several places that if you have, don't regularly unplug and plug back in like your cable modem, there may be firmware updates that have been pushed to it, but it's not going to reset itself. And wow, wow. There have been people that have done studies on this where there are cases where people have not, you know, had a power break or unplugged their modem for a year, 18 months, and updates are waiting to push onto there. And I'm almost certain you're probably okay, right? Uh, 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 but the risk is always there, right? And uh, yeah, I think that's an important thing to do. And you should be able to, you should be able to, to connect to your router via its IP address, correct? Is that how the home routers are gonna, are gonna work or? or? Well, I think the newer ones, uh, you can connect it via its IP address, but I think the, the, the advent of apps is, is a really important piece of this, being able to manage it with an app. So definitely for Wi-Fi, but I'm wondering, can the Google Wi-Fi serve as oh. a router? A router and a Wi-Fi? Well, no, it can't. But yeah, so that's a good point. My understanding is that for security purposes, like the stuff that you rent from your cable company, you can't do that. At least yeah. I've never been able to. And that's that's a little scary, right? Um, that that that's a that's a real um, a risk there. But you know, I think dated equipment, right? Like, in fact, uh, I recently uh, was contacted by my cable company because they updated me from 60 megabit ether or 60 megabit, uh, not ethernet, but uh, broadband to 120 megabit down uh, broadband. And I required a new modem to do that. And I looked at the bottom of my modem and it was, uh, it was uh, manufactured in 2011. So that's dated, right? It was uh, seven years old at that point. I don't have any means of checking the age of firmware there, but uh, it's a real issue. Very good. I've got another little random one to go to. Uh, this is from, it was on Wired, but then it was republished by Ars Technica. October 20th, how meme culture changed the PSAT. <laughs> this is kind sure. of fascinating. Um I guess, and this is a very practical thing, which maybe, you know, your college counselors and everybody's already sharing with kids, but, uh, you know, the folks at the college board do not look favorably upon people discussing the PSAT, um, let's say on Twitter or any other kind of social media. And so they have actually tweeted at students who, uh, you know, have Posted things and they said, if you're discovery, you know, discovered disclosing test content, your scores could be canceled, you know, and then they're, they're actually on their Twitter. This is from October 10th, 2018, you know, um, po- posting memes based that, you know, about how your, your scores are going to be canceled if you choose to uh, share any content from the tests online. And so, this is, this is pretty interesting stuff. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure these are 
older adults that maybe not understanding meme culture, but they're, you know, utilizing meme culture as an attempt to try and influence young people not to share about their, their tests. So, huh, we, uh, I think as our youngest is a sophomore. So she took the practice ACT, uh, just like last week or something. Um, and then we're, you know, having discussions about the PSAT and all this, but are we ever going to be free of this, Jason? Are we, are we doomed forever to, you know, deal with testing culture and, yeah, that's that's not anything really to do with technology, but that's one of the things I think about with all this because it seems so silly right. that so much hinges on it. Like, no, don't talk about it. If you tweet about it, your your life will be ruined. We'll we'll cancel your score. You're not going to college, young man. You've just tweeted about you've tweeted mess with the wrong people. Well, the one thing I would say is that while I understand why the college board is taking this proactive action, I can't imagine that if someone, you know, uh, and I know the PSAT is done on a single day in the middle of October and, um, you know, that, that's part of their shtick there. But to be honest, if, you know, you pick up some, you know, uh, hot tips on the PSAT on the West Coast from the kids that took it on the East Coast, my guess is you probably can't make up enough information in the two or three hours before then to really make any sort of real difference. Um, the same is true of uh, they're very careful about AP tests because that um, it's hard to to uh, to keep that information secret. But you know, you for, from the start of the AP test on the East Coast to the start of the AP test on the West Coast. Um, you get, you know, an hour or so after the one test is done and the other one starts. And my guess is, is that you probably can't make that much of a difference up, even if you find out some critical information about the test itself, even with the threats related to that. But, um, you know, I would applaud the college board for at least attempting to not look, uh, you know, like total, you know, old squares um, by attempting to utilize mean culture. Although I will say, um, and I'm sure I've done this before too, that there is nothing funnier than watching people that really don't understand what memes are, try to produce memes or mis misplace what a meme truly is. All right. Well, we are, we did start weirdly tonight. So we, we started at uh half past, so we will be going to half past and we've got about, look at that, 12 minutes. Where does the time flown? Um, you want to uh, hit any of those other uh, security? Well, let me let me do a security article and then I'll pass it off. Uh, Yahoo Finance, 18 October 2019. This will be quick. Equifax used admin as username and password for sensitive data lawsuit. So, you know, even if you <coughs> work for, I mean, I'm sure Equifax is a multi-million you know, dollar company. Um, yeah, your security folks that are paid to take care of of people, you know, maybe using admin admin as a username and password. I mean, I just, at some point, some of these breaches and things are just, somebody's going to need to go to jail. I'm reminded of what national treasure when they're like, whoever the uh, Nicholas Cage's character, you know, somebody goes to jail. I mean, who goes to jail? It's just like crazy. So anyway, beware if you're <laughs> an admin, change your passwords, use something yeah. complicated. I mean, yeah. and by, by the way, that was, no, did I say July 2018? Um, that was October 18th, 2019 for this Yahoo Finance article. Uh, Peggy was, was asking. Um, those were the, the, the password recommendations. What is good password hygiene? Use unique and long passwords on every website. That means a different one. That means using a password manager to keep track of it and probably generate your long passwords. And then turn on two-factor and multi-factor authentication on as many sites as you can. Do it. Tell your relatives. Thanksgiving. It's a great topic around the table. How many of us are using a password manager? Let me help you, Grandma. It's time to shift and change your ways. Yep, absolutely. And I would also point out one other article that I did post. And I did look. I didn't even put the link on there, but um, the Guardian reported. I think it was relatively recently. Um, a short, simple guide to securing all your passwords, and it's a pretty great article because um, um, it it kind of goes through you like the 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 quick steps you want to do. They also recommend a password manager as Wes and I have done a, a dozen times on this particular podcast. And I will tell you, I've been working hard the last six weeks to make sure that every one of my passwords, no matter how mundane the site is a randomly generated 10 character plus password underneath my last pass master password, which is pretty darn secure. So, um, and setting up two factor authentication, uh, whether it's via text message or through one of the apps like Authy has been part of that. 
Yeah. I've been so, using 30 character randoms for all of my school ones. Ooh. Hey, if you're copying them, what difference does it make, yeah. right? And the more, characters, the more characters you add, that's what the security researcher right. says, the big deal. It's not the complexity of the of the password as much as it is how long it is. So Right. And my school one is six, and my school ones are 16. So yeah, that's, that's great advice. So then I want to share one other security article and then we can do some other sundries. Um, this is from Forbes on October 11th. And I was completely blown away that by this because I have never, ever even heard of this concept before, but Forbes is reporting that over 18,000 websites are infested with something called mage cart cart skimming malware. And for those of you unaware of the phenomenon of card skimming, card skimming is a physical phenomenon where credit card terminals, ATMs, gas terminals that have credit card slots in them, people build infrastructure on top of the existing card reader in order to steal your card. So in other words, that as it passes through the piece of apparatus they've attached to it, it 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 scans your magnetic strip for the purposes of uh, stealing the card so that someone comes along, it stores uh, all the, the numbers um, and information from your card on there, and then sometimes people recreate the credit card and use it to scam your credit card. Now, the security chips that have been the most recent phenomenon of credit cards have diminished the effectiveness of that because um, cards are slowly and surely moving towards being chip only so that a strip only is not enough. But that's what a skimming device is. And what this digital skimming software does, MageCard, is that it essentially is malware that sits on top of a website and steals your credit card numbers as you're typing them in. And, you know, that sounds like, you know, you're buying some sketchy, you know, fell off the back of a truck electronics from, you know, bobsuperwarehouse.com, but big names like the Baseball Hall of Fame, and then a couple of prominent international hotel chains had this malware on their website, which led to potentially thousands of credit cards being scammed away from users. It's not something you would necessarily know or see. So this is a bigger security piece for websites and people that run e-commerce pieces. But I was blown away because I had no idea that this thing even existed. And I always assumed that when, you know, the SSL or digital certificate security is turned on on a website, which is basically everyone that gathers a credit card number or even a username and password, that I'd be secure. But apparently that's not the case. So our earlier advice this evening about checking your credit card for things that you shouldn't be a member of, that you should unsubscribe to, probably a good idea too, just from the standpoint of looking for charges that perhaps you don't recognize or otherwise did not complete yourself. Um, here in a minute, let's hit the copyright article. Peggy is reminding us we haven't talked about that yet. I'll do a quick one though, uh, again, under the miscellaneous tab. And uh, that is from the... Um, where did it go? Scrolling, scrolling. Uh, Ars Technica folks again. This was October 18th. Air Force finally retires eight inch floppies from missile launch control system. So they have moved to the solid state drive and these are the true floppies. The, uh, IBM series one has been, um, you know, utilizing these for launch control for our nuclear arsenal. So on the good side, I think it's wonderful to think that, you know, these systems are so stable and reliable that, you know, they've been in place for so long. But on the other hand, you know, it's these, these, these computers are not manufactured anymore. They talked about, you know, people hand soldering, you know, repair boards and, and recreate them and things like that. Uh, we took a tour. Now it's been maybe three weeks ago to Tinker Air Force Base, which is here in Oklahoma City. There's a $2.3 billion uh, program where uh, the KC-135 tanker and the B-52 and other aircraft are refurbished and, I need to write a blog post about it because it was incredible. But the, one of the most amazing things was they had a machine that's a million and a half dollars. I should have grabbed it. I have a little piece of, of scrap metal, but it takes powder and it actually creates the metal at the same time. It shapes it into exactly, you know, what kind of part is they, and they have scanners. So they, they can basically scan any aircraft part or whatever, and then they can make it, you know, in, in metal. Um, so that works for metal. But, you know, when it comes to computers and the IBM one, don't think, you know, 3D printing technology is going quite that far. So, yes, you can date yourself. 
if you know what an eight inch floppy was and if you, if you used one. Of course, my parents used punch cards, I think, when they were in college. So it depends on how far back we want to go. Right. And to be clear, I, I have seen eight, eight inch floppies before and I have, um, actually the, the very early days, my mom was a, um, was a bookkeeper in, in her, uh, career time. She's now a retired, uh, uh, owner of a quilt store. So she went on to do other things in her retirement, but she's been doing bookkeeping for, for, for 40 years of her career. And she was one of the earliest people in Great Falls, uh, where I grew up that, that, that moved to computerized accounting. And she had a, a customized computer accounting system, but her first computer had eight inch floppies on it before she moved to five and a quarter inch floppies on a CPM machine. It wasn't even a DOS machine. It was a, more esoteric version of that. So good stuff. So this last article, I'm sorry, I should have led with this one, but this one blows my mind. So there's a great article about potentially new copyright laws in place. And the House uh, had yesterday overwhelmingly approved a new copyright bill. And here's the reason why it's interesting. It takes copyright, which currently requires federal lawsuits, right? The way you, you, uh, uh, ask someone that refuses to mind your intellectual property via copyright to stop doing that is via federal courts. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, non-contentious, well, I, I should say non-contentious, non-punitive uh, ways of doing that, cease and desist and other legal requests to do that. But this, uh, this law essentially allows people to take smaller copyright infringements and put them into small claims court, in essence. Uh, state uh, and, and local jurisdictions can have jurisdiction over copyright. And I'll be frank that I do think that we have a loose copyright culture in education. I think it's dangerous to do so. But my guess is, is that the impact of this will actually be not a pleasant thing for education, because there are lots of things that probably are on the edges of fair use that... Um, could be argued, but now we're now putting this in the hands of courts that may or may not be capable of adjudicating this in a meaningful way. Um, and I think, and, and I will say in particularly in my industry, the distance learning industry, where I do think that there was a time where, where, where the distance learning industry was a little bit rampant in copyright abuse. The bottom line is, is that um, I, I think this may put too much power into rights holders or, or I'm sorry, content holders and could create a massive, uh, illegal, uh, uh, brouhaha over nothing. So, um, uh, Peggy, George and our audience asked a great question. Does this challenge our understanding about fair use? And I absolutely think it does because, um, first of all, fair use is a really complex topic. It, it goes both ways. I think some people assume there's more fair use rights than there actually are. And in the other direction, a lot of people go in the other direction inappropriately. They say that there is no right to use copyright materials where there is clearly exceptions in fair use law. So I, this is the first I've heard of this. So I'm a little blown away because I, I do read a lot of tech media. So I would assume this would have crossed my, my uh, piece before, but uh, yeah. So any thoughts, sir, about copyright tonight? Well, uh, I'm going to be publishing soon, uh, at least a blog post, if not for some other guidelines. Um, I mentioned the second grade remix video that we've, We've done, and it's just, there's been some really important conversations that we've had at school. There are some misconceptions people have. There's a lot of fears. You know, I, I think in reading just up about this, I mean, there's a difference in a, in a copyright strike, which is a DMC regulated takedown and then a content ID, you know, removal or editing. And that's just talking about YouTube uh, specifically. Um, it is, it's challenging and, I think I was amazed this last week, I guess, two weeks ago. Um, somebody from our church shared something on Facebook and I was like, where is that coming from? And I did a little, you know, Googling to try to figure out, you know, this company or whatever. And it, it, and it actually was, was tied to a meme. It was a meme related to, uh, the president and his wife and, uh, a little cartoon that somebody made about him staring, you know, through, uh, a wall, uh, through, a, through, uh, a fence, you know, at, and it was about immigration and, and those kinds of issues. But like the first thing that the, um, the 10 I, which is the website, I think I might have used it as a geek of the week that will allow you to reverse image search. You can use Google to do that <clears throat> was actually 
a site that was selling this cartoon. Well, it had come out before that. And anyway, in the context of copyright, it is shocking how quickly some things can be, you know, grabbed and stolen and then monetized. And the probably very few, you know, tools that people will tend to have in situations like that, especially if you're talking about like one cartoon or something like that. So it probably is a, is a pendulum. But I think the need to help educate teachers and students about fair use, about copyright. Um, and then, you know, Renee Hobbs in the Media Education Lab has done a lot of great work trying to to educate and and push back on the chilling effect that too much focus on, you know, litigation and not enough discussion of fair, of fair use can have. So I think it's something that is a big topic. It's it's confusing. Um, but I do think that we need ways to check those who abuse um, yeah. the rights of others because, you know, creatives rely on being able to share their work. And especially if they're going to be, you know, having their day jobs, being creative, which, you know, Jason and I are creative in our own ways, not through the EdTech situation room. This isn't paying anyone's bills. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an important thing to, to be able to protect those rights. So yep. I appreciate you pointing this article out. We'll be very interested to see what, what happens here. Okay, sir. Well, we are at the, I would say the top of the hour. We're actually at the bottom of the hour, which happens to be the one hour mark in our special time this week. So what do you have for Geek of the Week? All right. Well, thanks to one of my sixth graders, uh, Gray, I found the best video that I think I've ever stumbled across and utilized in an internet safety digital citizenship presentation. And it's by a very popular YouTuber called The Odd Ones Out. And the name of the video is Scams That Should Be Illegal. And I actually used just the first five minutes of this because the last three scams you talked about don't don't really uh, touch on the the issues of, of you know, protecting your passwords and, and not being a victim, basically, of online scams. So the odd the odd ones out, uh, like half my sixth graders all knew and had watched this person's channel, subscribed to it. Not many of the fifth graders in the room uh, tonight where we probably only had maybe eight or ten folks, uh, there were a couple kids and the sixth grader was the only one, you know, who'd ever heard of this guy. So not maybe a channel that you've heard of before, but it is, it is fantastic. He does his own, his own tricks, as it were, his own artwork, animations. Uh, it's fast paced humor. There's so many cultural references. It's just fantastic. So I've shared that with my students this week. And then I actually created a lesson on uh, my curriculum website for our media and digital literacy site, which I called Don't Get Tricked. And so that uh, link is there. Um, we used the See, Think, Wonder strategy, which is a visible thinking strategy from Harvard's Project Zero, which is a great little strategy to use when you want to talk about a video. And then the extension activity I have on this, there's this one and a half minute video, which I surely this was just an actress, um, but it, it's called Get an Engagement Ring. The website is called thespinner.net, and I've linked to a Forbes article from January of 2019, and that article is titled, For $29, This Man Will Help Manipulate Your Loved Ones with Targeted Facebook and Browser Links. And this is so crazy, you'd think this is false. But basically, you share a link, and if they click that on their phone, bam, you've got them, and you're going to be able to you know, either convince them that, yes, they should pop the question and give you an engagement ring or whatever you want to do to influence your people in your circle. I mean, it's this is crazy, but it's definitely a fantastic media literacy lesson. This stuff is out there and, you know, people are trying to push our buttons and pull our levers all the time. And one of the things we need to do is be aware of those kinds of things and try to raise the, uh, you know, knowledge and savvy level of of ourselves and, and others so that we can hopefully, you know, not be, not be unknowingly manipulated by others, but there's folks trying to do that all the time. Yep. That's great. I can't wait to see that video. Um, two quick ones. Um, first, this was in a number of, of, of uh, tech media uh, sources yesterday, but as it turns out, the good folks at Spotify are uh, for those that buy premium services from Spotify, either individual or a family plan, uh, you get a free Google Home Mini. So if you're interested in having an always on microphone in your home that also plays uh, uh, music and, and, and allows you access to the Google Assistant, you can sign up and go to his page on Spotify and reserve your Google Mini. But that's for new users, right? If you're oh, an existing no. subscriber? Oh, no. oh, I, including existing subscribers. What? 
Yeah, I signed up, and it said, great, you reserve, and we'll contact you when we're ready to send it to you. Okay, there you yep. go. And that's from The Verge, by the way. The, yeah. Well, and right, the- which ties to that other video, which is like, there are no free gift cards. Your you know, <laughs> uncle did not just receive uh, you know, a lot of money that he's going to wire you, blah, blah, blah. So Yeah, yeah. this is a free <laughs> thing that's otherwise 25 bucks, But it, it, not to go down a rabbit hole here. In fact, I will prevent from being a rabbit hole. But it's really interesting if you compare Google strategy with Amazon strategy because they're both starting to aggressively give away or give very discounted versions of their mini smart speakers. So that's the Echo. Um, a mini on Amazon. It's the Google Home mini um, speaker um, for Google, and Amazon has a deal every other day where those things are as cheap as ten bucks when you buy it with other stuff. So I just reserve mine, and hopefully, it's on the way. Yep, there it is. So then, the last piece of information. This is a piece of, of shameless promotion. But my brother-in-law, who is an engineer in Seattle, has designed a really cool project on Kickstarter. That if you are in a school or school district that requires you wear an ID, he's created a multi-tool that is an ID badge holder called Card Shark, and he's aiming it at. Uh, people on tech campuses and doctors and other folks that have to wear those types of IDs. But when I saw this for the first time, I said, there are some tech-savvy teachers out there that would really dig on this particular item. And if I was in a job that required an ID badge, I would wear this thing every single day. I'm probably, well, I have purchased or gone in the Kickstarter in support of my, my brother-in-law, Casey, but I also will probably end up trying to wear this at conferences too, because I think it's a kind of a cool thing. So please support Casey's Kickstarter and uh, go from there. So, Wes, uh, where can we find you on the Internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org, and I am continuing to share lessons uh, as well as other resources related to digital and media literacy on my classroom curriculum site, which is mdtech.cassidy.org. How about you, Jason? Excellent. I'm a tech savvy teacher on Twitter and I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. And registration just opened for NCC 2020 in Seattle in March 2020. So please see uh, ncc.org for details. But this podcast isn't NCC. This podcast is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once a week podcast where Wes and I get the opportunity to talk with one another about headlines and you can download our podcast anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated or on YouTube or on our website or now on our Facebook page where you can go and like us and see the broadcast live each and every week. Uh, We hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week on the Tech Situation Room and we wish you a safe and savvy world.